Chapter 15 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 5, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 15. Farragut's Victory. Events bring us to the relation of the capture of New Orleans, the commercial metropolis of the South, by a fleet under the command of flag officer David G. Farragut. The expedition took shape very gradually, first, through information derived from the blockade, second, through the practical experience gained at the bombardment of the Hatteras forts in August, and those at Port Royal in October, in the year 1861. In these engagements, the United States vessels of war demonstrated such a relative strength against shore batteries as to inspire confidence in yet more hazardous attempts of the same character. It was there proved that even wooden ships might be relied on to pass ordinary fortifications under fire with many chances of success, and upon this main idea the expedition against New Orleans was organized. It found its inspiration largely in the nautical skill and experience of the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Captain G. V. Fox, who, by many years of service both in the Navy and in the merchant coasting trade, had acquired a fund of practical knowledge which gave him a solidity of judgment and spirit of enterprise rarely found in a subordinate department official. The first indirect steps grew out of the necessities of the Gulf blockade. Ship Island, lying in the Gulf, off the coast of the state of Mississippi, midway between New Orleans and Mobile, was many years since selected as a point on which to erect a federal fort, which at the beginning of the rebellion had risen but little above its foundations. The island was taken possession of by the rebels, but found to be useless, with their limited resources, and abandoned. Thereupon the Union forces occupied it in September, and it soon became, because of its central position, the principal naval station in the Gulf. Several naval and military enterprises in that quarter were being suggested and studied during the autumn of 1861. Before it was determined whether the attack should be directed against the Texas coast, or New Orleans, or Mobile Bay, a preliminary force of 2,500 troops, under command of General Benjamin F. Butler, was organized to be sent to Ship Island, with a view of taking part in an expedition against such of these points as might be selected. New Orleans, being the most important prize, both military and political, naturally became the principal objective as information about the feasibility of its capture was collected. The turning point in its selection seems to have been the arrival at Washington early in November of Commander David D. Porter from several months blockading duty off the mouths of the Mississippi, bringing the latest information gleaned from spies and contrabands concerning the river and city defenses. The designs of the Navy Department were confidentially laid before him, and his professional opinion of the enterprise was asked. New Orleans lies on the Mississippi River, about 100 miles above its mouths, and the chief obstacles the fleet would have to encounter in its ascent were Forts St. Philip and Jackson, situated nearly opposite each other, at a bend of the river, 75 miles below the city. They were formidable forts of masonry, of scientific construction, originally built by the government, and, like so many others, had been seized by the state authorities in the early movements of secession, and turned over to the use of the Confederates. Together they had an armament of over 100 guns, and garrisons of 600 or 700 men each. Fort Jackson lay on the right bank of the stream, St. Philip on the left bank, half a mile above it. 
The original proposition of the Navy Department, says ex-Secretary Wells, was to run past the forts and capture the city, when, the fleet being above and communication cut off, the lower defenses must fall. Commander Porter concurred in the desirability and probable success of the naval expedition, which the department suggested and outlined, but strongly advised the addition of a powerful mortar flotilla, which should reduce these formidable forts by a bombardment before the fleet essayed to pass them, so as to leave no enemy or serious obstruction in the rear, and his proposal was adopted. The formal beginning of the enterprise dates from the 15th of November. On the evening of that day, there met at the residence of General McClellan a council comprised of President Lincoln, Mr. Wells, Secretary of the Navy, Assistant Secretary Fox, Commander Porter, and McClellan himself, whom the President had recently made General-in-Chief of all the armies. Here the proposed expedition against New Orleans was for the first time mentioned to the General. With the other members of the council, it was already a familiar topic. Hitherto, the army plans against New Orleans contemplated reaching it with a column descending the Mississippi from Cairo, and, premising that it would require an army of 50,000 to attack it from the Gulf, McClellan objected that he could not detach that number of troops from the other undertakings. Mr. Wells replied that he expected the Navy to capture the city, and that he only asked a contingent of 10,000 to hold it. One-fourth of this number was already destined for Ship Island. McClellan promised the required forces. The project was once more fully discussed and definitely ordered by the President, and three days thereafter, Porter was instructed to proceed to New York and organize his mortar flotilla, which he was to command in person. The enterprise once agreed upon, there came the momentous and perplexing question, who should command and lead an expedition of this magnitude and importance? By happy fortune, the choice of the department fell upon Captain David G. Farragut, 60 years of age, 48 years of which had been spent in naval service, he having become a midshipman when he was 11 years old. He was made lieutenant at 24, commander at 40, and captain at 54. But in all this time his talents, experience, and service had largely outrun his opportunities for distinction. Fame approached her favorite with unusual tardiness, even after the beginning of civil war. Though born in Tennessee, and twice allied by marriage with Virginia families, his heart was untouched by disloyalty. He was residing at Norfolk, Virginia, when the frenzy of secession seized the old dominion. On the morning, writes his son, when it was announced that Virginia had passed the ordinance of secession, April 18th, Farragut went as usual to the rendezvous previously mentioned, and was soon aware by the reserved manner and long faces of those about him that affairs had reached a climax. He expressed himself freely as not satisfied with the action of the convention, and believing that President Lincoln was fully justified in calling for troops after the seizure of the forts and arsenals. He was impatiently informed that a person of his sentiments could not live in Norfolk, to which he calmly replied, Well, then, I can live somewhere else. Returning home immediately, with a feeling that the time for prompt action had arrived, he announced to his wife his intention of sticking to the flag, and said to her, This act of mine may cause years of separation from your family so you must decide quickly whether you will go north or remain here. It is needless to say that her decision was as prompt as his own to go with her husband. He left the city by the evening steamer with his family, arriving in Baltimore the next day just after the mob had assaulted the 6th Massachusetts. Railroad connection with the north was already broken, but he was lucky enough to secure passage to Philadelphia on a canal boat, whence he proceeded to New York and domiciled his family in a quiet village on the Hudson. 
the government placed him at very necessary and useful but not prominent service and for nine months during all the first heat and tumult of the rebellion he remained comparatively unnoticed but he lost nothing by biding his time the department had not overlooked him and it now entrusted him with a task the successful performance of which within three months brought him immediate and world-wide renown about a month after porter went to new york to prepare his mortar flotilla captain farragut was called to washington and confidentially informed of the duty he was expected to undertake in return mr wells says he gave his unqualified approval of the original plan adopted it with enthusiasm and said it was the true way to get to new orleans and offered to run by the forts with even a less number of vessels than we were preparing for him provided that number could not be supplied while he would not have advised the mortar flotilla it might be of greater benefit than he anticipated might be more efficient than he expected and he willingly adopted it as a part of his command though he apprehended it would be likely to warn the enemy of our intentions he expected however to pass the forts and restore new orleans to the government or never return he might not come back he said but the city would be ours something of this spirit and confidence appear in the brief note to his family under date of december twenty first eighteen sixty one announcing his great opportunity keep your lips closed and burn my letters for perfect silence is to be observed the first injunction of the secretary i am to have a flag in the gulf and the rest depends upon myself keep calm and silent i shall sail in three weeks on the ninth of january farragut was appointed to the command of the western gulf blockading squadron on the twentieth he received his confidential instructions to attempt the capture of the city of new orleans he sailed from hampton roads on the third of february in the steam sloop hartford a screw ship of the second class nineteen hundred tons burthen capable under combined sail and steam power of a speed of eleven knots and carrying a battery of twenty-five guns a swift strong ship of beautiful proportions and with perfect appointments realizing the sailor's highest ideal of grace in outline celerity in motion and efficiency in combat farragut made the hartford his flagship and at a time when the traditional glories of wooden ships began to vanish before the encroachments of iron armor the admiration and confidence he bestowed on his vessel lends a tinge of romance to the achievements by which he carried her fame into history the reader may be spared the period of vexatious delay and anxious preparation it is enough to say farragut acted on his maxim the rest depends upon myself with his half-century's sea experience his critical inspection neglected no detail of hull spar or rigging omitted no essential instruction to each commander and crew of his fleet if space permitted it would be a pleasure to record the qualities of his vessels and high above these the skill and devotion of the commanders who sailed under him they caught his zeal they shared his courage one impulse of confidence one resolution of success possessed them all there have probably been few instances where the will and power of the fleet were so thoroughly centered in the flag by the middle of april the expedition was before the forts below new orleans farragut with seventeen men-of-war and one hundred and seventy-seven guns porter with a mortar flotilla of nineteen schooners and six armed steamships for guard and towing service general butler with the army contingent of six thousand men the remainder being yet detained at ship island for want of transports the rebel defences were of threefold character first forts jackson and st philip with about one hundred fifteen guns fourteen of them in casemate second a river barrier one and a half miles below the forts 
consisting of log rafts and dismasted schooners, anchored at intervals and connected by strong chains. Third, an improvised fleet of sixteen rebel gunboats, several of them armed with iron prows, and one of them, the Manassas, an iron-plated ram. Still another vessel of formidable construction also designed for iron plating, but in default of which her sloping sides were covered with railroad iron, remained unfinished. She was brought down and anchored half a mile above Fort St. Philip, thus adding a stationary battery of sixteen guns to the strength of the upper fort. Of the various land defenses near the city, and breastworks and rifle pits to guard against inland approaches, and through bayous, it is needless to make mention. The course and consequences of the attack rendered them of no avail. One additional, and by no means insignificant, device of protection had been ingeniously prepared by the enemy. Long flatboats were filled with the resinous and highly inflammable pine knots of the south, and thus converted into fire rafts, to be set ablaze and adrift at the opportune moment, to carry terror and destruction into the midst of the ascending fleet. On the 18th of April, Porter's flotilla of 19 schooners, carrying two mortars each, were anchored from 2,500 to 4,000 yards below the forts, where they began a terrific bombardment, firing on the first day over 1,400 shells. Nearly all the bombs were directed at Fort Jackson, the nearest and largest work, and, notwithstanding a certain want of accuracy, the immense number of missiles created fearful destruction, burning the wooden structures and dismounting barbette guns. That first night, while the fire was raging within and about it, Fort Jackson was well-nigh helpless. But its condition was not known in the Union fleet, and advantage could not be taken of the panic. For five days longer, Porter continued his furious bombardment, greatly increasing mere exterior damage, but, as the garrison was kept in the casements, the effectiveness of the work was not thereby materially reduced. On the third day, Porter began to lose confidence in mortars, and on the fifth day, Farragut decided to try his ships. Two of the gunboats were sent on the night of the 20th to cut away the barrier of hulks and rafts stretched across the river, and succeeded in making an opening sufficient to enable vessels to pass through. At two o'clock on the morning of April 24th, Farragut gave the signal to advance. Porter at the same time increasing his bombardment to its utmost rapidity. The fleet was organized for the attack in two sections, the column of the red to proceed first and following the east bank to engage Fort St. Philip. This division, consisting of eight ships with 67 guns, was commanded by Captain Theodorus Bailey and led by the gunboat Cayuga. The column of the blue was to follow, keeping to the west bank, and attack the stronger works of Fort Jackson. This division, consisting of nine ships with 87 guns, was commanded by Farragut himself, and led by his flagship, the Hartford. And now there ensued a naval battle which, after the opening movements, it is simply impossible to describe. As the divisions passed through the barrier, the forts opened their cannonade, to which, until near approach, the ship's guns were not in position to make reply. Once abreast the works, the vessels successively slowed their speed to discharge broadsides of grape and canister, quickly clearing the parapets, the rebel gunners, however, pluckily returning to their guns as chance permitted. The fire of St. Philip, upon which Porter had exercised only a single mortar, dismounting but a single gun, was especially hot in these intermissions of defense. It was a quiet April night, illumined only by starlight, and the thin crescent of the waning moon, but with the opening of battle, the scene changed to alternations of fire and smoke, 
a quick succession of light and darkness, of dazzling blaze and impenetrable gloom. The divisions, starting in orderly line, became separated and mixed. The fire became general, says Farragut's report, the smoke dense, and we had nothing to aim at but the flash of their guns. It was very difficult to distinguish friends from foes. It was a kind of guerrilla. They were fighting in all directions. While the Hartford and her concerts were yet thundering their broadsides against Fort Jackson, the division of the Red, led by the Cayuga, had already run the gauntlet of the two forts, but above their line of fire they encountered the Confederate gunboat flotilla. The vessels composing it were not only inferior in strength and armament to the Union gunboats, but were under three different and independent commanders, which diminished their efficiency for defense. It was still dark when the Union gunboats dashed among them, and no coherent narrative of the encounter has been, or perhaps could be, preserved. On the Union side, it was hot pursuit. On the Rebel side, quick catastrophe. Bailey, the division commander, sententiously sums up the struggle. Two large steamers now attempted to board, one on our starboard bow, the other stern, a third on our starboard beam. The eleven-inch Dahlgren being trained on this fellow, we fired at a range of thirty yards. The effect was very destructive. He immediately steered to shore, ran aground, and burned himself up. The parrot gun on the forecastle drove off one on the bow, while we prepared to repel boarders, so close was our remaining enemy. About this time Boggs, of the Varuna, and Lee, of the Oneida, came dashing in and made a finish of the rebel boats, eleven in all. But the victory also brought its injuries and losses. The ships were all more or less riddled by the small shot from the forts, and the Varuna, having in her eagerness run ahead of her companions, was set upon by two rebel gunboats which rammed her from opposite sides and sunk her. The division of the Blue, following under Farragut, was not without its dangers and achievements. Three of the rear gunboats failed to pass the forts at all, and returned, one of them with machinery disabled, to Porter's flotilla below. One of the large ships, the Brooklyn, became seriously entangled with the barrier of hulks and rafts. Then she was feebly butted by the ram Manassas. Afterwards, while yet under the fire of Fort Jackson, she was attacked by a large rebel steamer. But Captain T.T. T. Craving, in his report, says, Our port broadside, at the short distance of only fifty or sixty yards, completely finished him, setting him on fire almost instantaneously. Perhaps the most exciting incident of the passage happened to the Hartford. The enemy had on several occasions set adrift and sent down fire rafts, but the efficient fire brigade with boats, grapnels, and other appliances specially organized to meet them had hitherto succeeded in towing them out of the way to points where they would be harmless. It happened as the Hartford was passing Fort St. Philip, one of these fire rafts came down, not merely drifting in the current, but pushed and directed by a rebel tugboat. The Hartford, swerving aside to avoid the encounter, ran aground, and the tug, perceiving the advantage, boldly pushed the blazing raft against the flagship. In an instant the flames enveloped the whole ship's side, and it flashed aloft into the rigging. It was a critical and painful moment to Farragut. My God, he exclaimed, is it to end in this way? But caution and good discipline triumphed. Only the dry paint was as yet ablaze, and a well-directed steam of water from the fire apparatus subdued the mounting flame. Most opportunely, too, the ship's engines were able to back her from her great peril, and she continued up the river, silencing the guns of Fort St. Philip as she passed. The Confederates evidently expected much from the ram Manassas of their flotilla, 
described as a converted tugboat covered with half-inch iron plating carrying a 32-pounder gun in her bow. No accurate description of her movements is reported, and during the fight she mysteriously appeared and disappeared in the darkness among the ships, though her efforts to inflict damage proved ineffectual. As the day dawned, she was discovered following the vessels up the river, and Commander Melanchthon Smith, with the large side-wheel steamer Mississippi, turned back and attacked and captured her, though he was unable to take her in tow or spare a crew to man her. I directed her to be set on fire, reports Commander Smith, and then so riddled her with shot that she was dislodged from the bank and drifted below the forts, where she blew up and sank. This incident appears to have closed the engagement. The vessels passed up the river and came temporarily to anchor at Quarantine Station, six miles above the forts. The combat had lasted about one and a half hours. The rebel flotilla, with the exception of three steamers, was destroyed. The Union loss was, the Varuna sunk, considerable miscellaneous damage to other ships, and a total of 24 killed and 86 wounded. A little more than six weeks from the day when the great naval battle between the Merrimack and Monitor in Hampton Roads filled the world with the new fame of ironclads, Farragut's victory at New Orleans revived the prestige of wooden ships when handled with courage and skill. The Union fleet made but a short halt at quarantine. Farragut pushed on over the 75 miles of distance which lay between him and the main object and prize of his expedition. By 10 o'clock of April 25th, he was at the Chalmette Batteries, three miles below the city. In 10 minutes, the ships had silenced the works. The fleet moved cautiously round the bend in the river, and New Orleans lay helpless under the Union guns. News of the hostile approach put its population of 150,000 souls into a dangerous ferment from opposing passions of rage and fear. With only 3,000 Confederate troops, but 18 days' provisions for the people, with the certainty of siege and starvation if he remained, the Confederate general, Mansfeld Lovell, resolved to evacuate the place and all its dependencies. To this end, he hastily removed such arms and supplies as he could, and ordered the destruction of the remaining Confederate war material and property. Cotton, coal, timber, steamboats, and the unfinished ironclad Mississippi were burned. The destruction of property was awful, says Farragut. If the necessities of war palliate such sacrifice, the same excuse cannot justify the order of the Richmond authorities and the fleeing governor's proclamation to the planters of that exposed interior to burn their cotton, in obedience to which an infatuated zeal wrought the destruction of millions of private property, serving no end except to impoverish the community. At noon of the 25th, Farragut sent Captain Bailey, who commanded the Division of the Red, to confer with the mayor of New Orleans. It was an imprudent exposure of his most valuable officer, for, as Bailey with a single companion walked from the landing to the city hall, they were followed by a noisy and insulting street rabble, cheering for Jefferson Davis and uttering wild threats of violence. The resolute and self-possessed bearing of the two officers alone saved them. Bailey demanded of Mayor John T. Monroe that he should surrender the city and raise the Union flag. The mayor answered that he had no military authority and called in General Lovell, who, on his part, refused to surrender, but announced that he would evacuate the city and then leave the civil authorities to act as they might deem proper. Bailey returned and reported these equivocal answers. On the following day, April 26th, Farragut, by letter again demanded of the mayor, the unqualified surrender of the city, the lowering of all hostile flags, 
and that the emblem of sovereignty of the United States be hoisted over the city hall, mint, and custom house by meridian of this day. To this, the mayor replied on the same afternoon, with a long letter of mixed grandiloquence and contumacy, that General Lovell has evacuated it, the city, with his troops, and restored back to me the administration of its government. That the city is without means of defense, that to surrender such a place were an idle and unmeaning ceremony, and that the people of New Orleans yield simply that obedience which the conqueror is enabled to extort from the conquered. This last statement the mayor prefaced by the declaration, the obligations which I shall assume in their name shall be religiously complied with. Though connected with other phrases intended to tickle the ears of the rebel populace with a sound of refusal, this language was in fact a formal and technical surrender of the city. Accordingly, on the morning of Sunday, April 27th, Farragut ordered Captain Henry W. Morris of the Pensacola, anchored near the Mint, to hoist the Union flag over that building, which was done. Instead of leaving a file of Marines to guard it, Captain Morris thought to protect the flag by loading a howitzer in the main top of his ship with grape, pointing it at the flagstaff with orders to the lookout to fire upon anyone who might approach to molest it. It being Sunday, the ship's crew were assembled for prayers at eleven o'clock, and while the service was going on, the lookout saw four men suddenly appear at the flagstaff, cut the halyards, and rush away with their booty. He fired the howitzer, but without effect, and the desperados descended from the building and joined the rabble below, where the flag was dragged through the streets, publicly insulted, and torn into shreds. Law and order required the mayor promptly to punish these offenders, in order to redeem his religious pledge for the city of the day before, to yield obedience to the captor. The mayor did nothing of the kind. On the contrary, the leading newspaper published the names of the perpetrators with commendations, while the populace gloated over the act of defiance. Punishment nevertheless came. William B. Mumford, the ringleader, who cut loose the flag, was afterwards, under General Butler's command of the city, tried and hung from a window of the same building for his grave military crime. Meanwhile, further dilatory correspondence came from the mayor and common council, and on April 28th, Farragut sent a qualified threat that he would bombard the city and in order to remove the women and children. The mayor returned another whining and contumacious reply, sheltering his evasion and non-compliance under tricky phrases and appeals, apparently more designed to provoke than to avert bombardment and slaughter. His language assumed privileges of hostility while claiming immunity as prisoners. The mayor's purpose in this persistent quibbling over the word surrender becomes intelligible when we read Jefferson Davis's dispatch to him of April 28th. Your answer to Commander Farragut leaves to you all the chances and rights of war. Maintain firmly the position you took in your reply, and let us hope for a successful issue. Farragut, however, kept his temper. On the 29th, he sent a strong guard of Marines with howitzers, formerly to take down the rebel flags from the public buildings and raise those of the United States in their stead, with a new warning to the mayor, since which day they have floated inviolate. Our narrative must return to Forts Jackson and St. Philip. Though the Union fleet was both below and above them, they still remained in possession of the rebels, who, as well as they might, repaired the damage from the bombardment. After Farragut had passed the forts, Porter sent a demand for their surrender, but the Confederate commander refused. Porter's situation was not free from peril. The rebel ironclad, Louisiana, still lay anchored above the forts, and her exact offensive strength, or rather, 
As it turned out, her weakness was not known. Had she been as effective as was supposed, she might have wrought great havoc among the mortar flotilla. Porter therefore ceased his fire and stationed his vessels for defensive action. Farragut's plan, announced in his general order of April 20th, was that the fort should be run, and when a force is once above the forts to protect the troops, they should be landed at quarantine from the gulf side by bringing them through the bayou, and then our forces should move up the river, mutually aiding each other as it can be done to advantage. The attack thus consisted of three combined movements. First, Porter's bombardment. Second, Farragut's dash past the forts. Third, the landing of Butler's troops. This third feature was now put in execution. Before proceeding up the river, Farragut sent back word that he would leave two gunboats at quarantine to protect the landing. It is estimated that the annual floods of the Mississippi River bring down to the Mexican Gulf an amount of sand and mud equal, for an average year, to amass one square mile in area and 268 feet deep. By these annual deposits, the river has built for itself narrow banks, dikes, or levees, extending 30 or 40 miles into the ocean, so that the waters and marshes of the gulf, on both sides, approach very near this enclosed riverbed. Farragut's fleet was no sooner well past the forts on the morning of the 24th then Butler proceeded with his transports down the river, out through Pasalutra, the easternmost mouth of the Mississippi, and around eastwardly to Sable Island, 12 miles in rear of Fort St. Philip. Here he transshipped three regiments to the gunboat Miami, of lighter draft, in which he was able to proceed to within six miles of the fort. He had also brought with him 30 small boats, to which he again transferred the 26th Massachusetts, and portions of the 4th Wisconsin and 21st Indiana, who rowed their boats four and a half miles farther. At the entrance of Manuel's Canal, says Butler's report, a mile and a half from the point of landing, rowing became impossible, as well from the narrowness of the canal as the strength of the current, which ran like a mill race. Through this, the boats could only be impelled by dragging them singly, with the men up to their waists in water. It required persevering effort and considerable time to make this long circuit. They had started on the 24th. On the 26th, where the gunboats Wissahickon and Kineo awaited them. Meanwhile, by a similar circuit, Porter had sent six schooners of his mortar fleet down out of the southwest pass and round westwardly, through the gulf and bayous, to the rear of Fort Jackson. As soon as Butler could land more troops, he threw a detachment across the river, thus holding both banks against retreat, supply, or reinforcement. The rebel garrisons of Fort Jackson and St. Philip, though having a complete respite from attack since the passage of the fleet, and though they had to a considerable extent repaired their damage, could entertain from the first little hope of succor or escape. The Union officers at quarantine, immediately after the action, permitted the seriously wounded of both forts to be placed on board the Confederate steamer McRae and sent to New Orleans under flag of truce. By this means, the garrisons received news of the capture of New Orleans, the retirement of General Lovell's army, and the burning of the ironclad Mississippi. While they noted these diminishing chances, they could also see Butler's gunboats, transports, and launches working their way up the bay and bayous above them, and finally landing troops at quarantine. On the 26th, Porter again summoned the forts to capitulate, offering liberal terms and pointing out that though they might hold out a little longer, their surrender was necessarily a mere question of time. 
Lieutenant Colonel Edward Higgins, commanding, replied that he had as yet no official information on the surrender of New Orleans, and could not until then entertain the proposition. But while the rebel commanders were hesitating, the men composing the garrisons were forming their own conclusions and preparing to act on them. At midnight of April 27th, there was a sudden mutiny in Fort Jackson. The insurgents seized the guards, reversed the field pieces commanding the gates, and began spiking the guns and fired upon officers who went to the parapet to control them. Simultaneously, about half the garrison deserted the fort with their arms and surrendered themselves to Butler's pickets. This state of affairs left the commanders no alternative. On the forenoon of April 28th, they sent a flag of truce to Porter, accepting his terms of capitulation, which were duly signed at an interview between the officers on the steamer Harriet Lane that afternoon. While the officers sat together in the cabin, an exciting incident took place. The Confederate note of acceptance stated that we have no control over the vessels afloat, but it was taken for granted that the flags of truce flying from the Union ships and visible to all were a sufficient safeguard. Great was the consternation, therefore, when it was suddenly announced that the Confederate ironclad Louisiana, hitherto anchored above Fort St. Philip, had been set on fire by her commander, abandoned, and cut adrift, and was floating down towards the other ships. Porter writes that he said to the Confederate officers, This is sharp practice, but if you can stand the explosion when it comes, we can. We will go on and finish the capitulation. The Confederate officers protested their innocence of the act, and quietly remained. As the wreck, in descending, kept close into the Fort St. Philip shore, reports Confederate General J.K. Duncan, the chances were taken by the enemy without changing the position of the boats. Fortunately, the Louisiana exploded when abreast Fort St. Philip, and before she had come near enough to cause damage to Porter's ships. End of chapter 15